Well, what a joy it is for me to be with you today and to have the privilege of uh, filling this pulpit in the absence of our pastor. And I'm uh, appreciative of having uh, some additional family members with us today. Our oldest son, Steve, from Greenville, South Carolina, is here. And then our grandson, Justin, and his wife, Jeannie, and their daughter, Ellery, and Frank, their son, is with us from also the Greenville area, Simpsonville, I believe, or right in that particular area. So it's good to have them here with us. And good for you to be here, and I praise God for the opportunity of sharing with you the Word of God. I'm going to be preaching a message entitled, Taught by Grace, and my text is going to be in the second chapter, part of the second chapter of the book of Titus, Paul writing that epistle to his true son in the faith, Titus. I want to say just a word about the background of that, and then I want to lay some foundation for the thrust of the text taken from Titus chapter 2. Paul had uh, had the opportunity of being in Crete, and uh, along with Titus, his son in the faith, but Paul was departing, and he was going to leave Titus uh, in Crete because there were things that needed to be done. In the opening part of the epistle that Paul writes to Titus, he says, I want you to give attention to those things that are lacking in the ministry there. He said, for this reason, I left you in Crete. Now, Crete is an island out in the Mediterranean, about 100 miles, 99 miles, I believe, off the south shore of Greece. The island itself is about 160 miles in length from east to west. And in its narrowest point, it's about seven and a half miles wide, and in its broadest point, about 37 miles in width. Crete is a very, uh, has a very interesting and intriguing background, uh, especially in light of the culture that was ungodly, especially the fact that uh, the Cretes, the Cretans, were known for being liars. In fact, Epidemides, who was a, a, a Greek from Crete himself, uh, wrote of them in about the 500s or 5 to 600 BC, and he described them as always liars, brute beasts, and slow bellies. In other words, they lied about everything. They were uh, beast-like in their morality and lack of character, and they were lazy gluttons. They loved to eat but hated to work. That's a bad combination. Uh, a fellow could easily go hungry with that kind of an outlook on life, loving to eat but detesting work. So there was work to do in the, uh, on the island of Crete by Titus. So Paul writes this letter to him to encourage him. He tells them that his, one of his responsibilities will be to appoint uh, bishops or elders or pastors, or you might know them, spiritual leaders, in the churches all across the island. Evidently, there had been uh, good evangelism. A number of folks had been saved, and uh, some home churches perhaps had been established. But uh, Paul said, you must seek out godly men who can... Uh, pastor the work, and take care of those things that are lacking in their lives and in their ministries. And he gives the, uh, an outline of the requirements 
that were set forth for pastoral leadership in the churches. And then moving on to the second chapter, he begins by uh, telling Titus to deal particularly with the older men and then the younger men with the older women and then the younger women and with the servants. In other words, the whole uh, cross-section of the inhabitants of the, on the island of Crete were to be dealt with, and Paul gives him instruction. And then that moves us into a particular part where uh, I want to focus this morning. But before we get there, I think we need to lay a little bit of a foundation for what's to be expected and the reason why we have this stern instruction that is given in Titus chapter 2. Let's look to the Lord in prayer to begin to look into his word and ask God if he would teach us by his precious Holy Spirit this morning. Father, it is a joy to be uh, with believers, those of like precious faith, as we worship together this morning. We thank you for the songs that have reminded us of your great love for us. My, how we appreciate that love. We thank you, dear God, for the opportunity we have to open the Bible and read from the pages of Scripture, thus saith the Lord. So would you open our hearts now and give us receptive hearts and minds that we might not only hear the Word of God, but understand it. May the Spirit of God take the things that are Christ and make them known unto us. And then, dear God, may we, upon hearing the truths of your Word, put them into practice in our lives day by day. So we commit these moments to you and ask God that you would, by your precious Holy Spirit, use this speaker to bring forth your word in a way that would be pleasing in your sight and a blessing and a challenge to each of our hearts and our lives. And we'll be careful to thank you and praise you for it. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to invite your attention, first of all, to the, the epistle of 1 Peter. And in this text of Scripture, I believe we have outlined for us the divine imperative that comes from Almighty God. I think we need to listen to this divine imperative to appreciate what God says to us later as we examine a portion of Scripture from Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read several verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, first of all, beginning with verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, redeeming the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And then dropping down to verse 13, reading verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That is a, a divine imperative 
that is recorded for us. We don't hear a lot about that. We don't perhaps think enough about the challenge, the imperative that's given in that text. Be ye holy, for I am holy. God expects from his children holiness of living. We shy, we shy away from that word too often. Uh, when we understand what's involved in holiness, we are cast in our dependence upon the living God. For we realize we're just simply sinners, either saved by the grace of God or sinners still lost, dead in trespasses and sins. And God expects of us holiness of living. Sinners saved by grace will have a problem unless we lean upon the good grace of God for that kind of living. Holiness has a, an evil connotation in the minds of too many people. But among those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior, it ought to be a familiar word. It ought to be a, a, an imperative that we would uh, seek to follow to the best of our God-given ability, to be that which pleases God. So we begin with a divine imperative, but if we're left there without additional help, we'll never find that holiness of living. So we have a a, a divine instrument that is given to us, and it is the blessed and eternal Word of God. I want you to follow along in your Bible on two texts of Scripture, one found in Psalm 19 and the other found in Psalm 119. I want you to focus on one central thought in these verses. In Psalm 19, uh, David moves along after declaring the glory of God that is demonstrated in this world in which we live. And he talks about the word of the living God. I'm beginning in Psalm 19 with verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7, verse 8, and verse 11 particularly. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now I want you to notice carefully the capability of the word of God. And here this first thing that is mentioned is the conversion of our soul. That, that is a tremendous thought to realize that we, by the grace of God, through the work of the Spirit of God and the instruction of the Word of God, can come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and be forgiven of our sins, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Conversion is the word that is used here. And it says that the Lord of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, just those few verses from Psalm 19 should encourage us to get to know the Word of God, to know it uh, intimately, not just the head knowledge, but hiding that Word in our hearts so we might not sin against God. The, the psalmist declares the wonder of the Word of God in just these brief statements. You'll notice conversion was mentioned. You'll notice also that it's making wise the simple-minded. You'll notice in verse Number eight, that the statutes of the light of the Lord are right, 
That word right is translated in uh, several instances as righteous. The word of God is right and righteous. It comes from the very heart of God. Not only is it right, rejoicing the heart, but the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It shines light where there would be dullness otherwise. It gives us the ability to see beyond to those things that are eternal. Blessings of God. And the word of God takes us there. Then in verse 11, moreover by them is thy servant warned. We need that warning. We need that word of God that speaks to us to say, hey, it's time to change direction. It's time to draw nigh to me. It's time, time to avoid this, but put on this in your life as a believer. We begin to understand then how the word of God is that divine instrument used by the spirit of God to take us in the direction that we need to go in order to be able to obey that command as best we can by the grace of God, be ye holy, for I am holy. May I mention that there is no separation between our dependence upon the word of God and our living a life holy unto God. They're inseparable. You can't do it without the word of God. In Psalm uh, 119, David, again, is uh, the penman of this blessed uh, psalm in all of its length. But I want to call your attention just to uh, four or five verses of Scripture that speak about the Word of God. The entire psalm, the subject is the Word of God. But notice these very familiar portions of Scripture. Verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. How are we going to clean up our lives? How is God going to work? What instrument is he going to use uh, to show us the light of the way in which we ought to go? To, to move us toward a holiness of living that is separated unto God and living for God's glory. And living as God pleases instead of living as we please. He's going to do it through his word. There would be no holy living without a good view and a good knowledge of the word of God. That's what the psalmist declares. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And he answers it by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Look at verse 11. It's his testimony. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. A sin is what spoils our lives. Sin is what brings shame upon the professing believer. Sin is what grieves the heart of God when it's found in the life of his child. And we can't have uh, open sin in our lives and yet expect to please God with a holy lifestyle. A holy life is a life that takes every part of our being and dedicates it to the living God and seeks his direction and his divine help. So he answers the question that he asks. And the answer of course is by the divine instrument. Which is the word of God. I'm reading next Psalm uh, 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. The word of God enlightens our hearts. It shows us. It takes us out of the darkness and makes us a child of light. And we walk in light and not in darkness. 
We're drawing nigh to God. We're living for God. We're pleasing God. It becomes a consuming ambition of the life of the believer to please God. I have found increasingly uh, in these uh, late years, I'm sure I have emphasized that before in my praying unto the Lord God, but I, I find increasingly so in these days, praying and asking God, Oh, dear God, help me to live a life that would please you. May I have a consuming desire to please you, my heavenly Father. Not do what I want. Not to walk in my way. Not to exercise my will. But to, wait, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And doing the will of God to please him. The consuming desire of my heart in these days is to please God. I hope that's true in your life. In this text of scripture, that word is being a lamp and a light unto our feet and our path is going to lead us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And as long as we follow, we'll be walking in the light and pleasing him. Notice verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple and verse 133, order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. These are sayings that come out of the very heart of David, a man who wanted to please God, whose life was given to pleasing God. Certainly, David was a sinner, as we, as we all are. Surely, David committed some gross sin before Almighty God. But he was a child of God, and he was a man after God's own heart. And God loved him, and David wanted to please God. He got forgiveness and cleansing from his sins, and renewed that dedication unto the living God, that he might live a holy life as God expects. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So we have the divine imperative, holiness of living. That's practical holiness. That's not being so heavenly minded, we're not any earthly good. It's being, uh, uh, it's exercising in all of life a holiness set apart to please God that causes us to put away that which displeases him and run toward those things that please the living God. So that's the divine imperative. The divine instrument is the word of God. It would be a frustrating thing for you or for me to attempt to live a holy life separated unto God and separated from sin without the divine assistance of the Spirit of God using the Word of God to show us the way to walk in our lives. So God makes it very clear. He's given the divine imperative. He has given and furnished the divine instrument. Now we come to the divine initiative. Initiative, salvation is of God. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. It's all of the grace of God. And to, to understand that grace, to move into the center of that grace of God and live in the midst of that grace of God, not only takes us from the position being lost, dead in trespasses and sins, but it takes us step by step in a life that can be lived to the glory of God. It's all of grace. Wonderful, marvelous grace of God. A lot of the definitions have been giving of grace. 
Some of them are just sort of trite sayings. Uh, it, it indeed is uh, God's riches to us at the expense of his son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely it is God giving us what we do not deserve and holding back from us what we do deserve. That's the grace of God. But don't limit this wonderful grace of God just to a few areas of your life. Realize that from beginning to end, this work of salvation and living the Christian life and pleasing God and being holy in our living is all by the divine enablement of Almighty God through the instrument of the Word of God under the power of the Spirit of God working in the heart of the believer. Now turn with me to the book of Titus where we'll uh, spend the rest of our uh, moments this morning looking at this particular text of Scripture. Uh, keep in mind the background that I shared just a bit of uh, for Titus that tells you uh, basically what the people that Titus would be working with uh, were like and the necessity for uh, the power of God in the ministry of the Word of God. Before I go to that second chapter, let me just read and emphasize something that is brought out in the very first verse of the epistle of Paul to Titus. And I read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now, there are three words I call to your attention in that that sort of sets the stage for the challenge, the divine initiative that we find later in chapter 2. I want you to notice, first of all, the word acknowledging. Uh, we would have perhaps a different connotation of that word and its meaning to us. We acknowledge something. But this word is speaking of a knowledge that is thorough in its content. Uh, that it is deeper than just a casual knowing of some fact or some event. It is a knowledge that reaches to the depth of one's being and gives an understanding of a requirement that God has set forth. It is acknowledging the truth which is after. And that has a slightly different meaning than we, must, we might first think when we look at it. We would just say that's after is something that just comes along later. Uh, it follows us. But that's not the thrust of the word as it's used here. In this text of Scripture, it is denoting the purpose for what has preceded it and the realization of that which follows it. And it's interesting to note that in this context of Titus 1.1, that the word godliness is mentioned. You can put that word godliness in the same camp with what we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, be ye holy, for I am holy. For holy living is godly living. And an absence of godly living or godliness is a life at distance from God, running contrary to the things of God, the will of God, the way of God, and the word of God. So at the very onset, as Paul 
introduces himself, introduces this letter to Titus. He says to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging that searching, that thorough truth of the divine revelation given in the word of God, of the truth which is after or with the purpose of setting forth godly living. That's the way Paul introduces the epistle. We would expect then to find that theme enlarged upon in the text of Titus, and we do. Now I move you to the second chapter of this epistle of Paul to Titus. I'm focusing on verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. And we're looking at the divine initiative. Now I should not use the as if it is the only divine initiative. I should not use the divine instrument as it would be the only instrument. I should not use the divine imperative as if it were the only imperative given in the word of God, for they are not such. But it is, it is an imperative given by God. It is a divine imperative. It comes from the heart of God to the heart of his child. So he's speaking to you dear Christian, and he's speaking to me. There's no exception here. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, you're included. This is what God expects of you. This is what God commands of us. And to fall short of that is to fall short of pleasing God as we ought to. So it ought to become of prime importance to you and to me to find out what God is saying and get in line with it. Now, Paul was led of the Spirit of God to be very emphatic in some of his statements, even in the epistle of, uh, uh, that Paul wrote to Titus. And we'll see some of that in the, in the text of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, he's already addressed how Titus is to approach ordaining bishops, pastors, spiritual leadership in churches scattered across the island of Crete. We've already uh, had brought to our attention that Crete, uh, the Cretans are always liars. They have a ways to go in Christ-like living, that they are brute beasts, that they are slow bellies, lazy gluttons, beast-like in character, and always lying. So Titus's work is cut out for him. But Paul doesn't pull any pinches. In fact, the Spirit of God pulls no punches. He just lays it on the line and says, this is what must be done. This is the life that would please me. And he begins to address the issue. I'm going to read through the text. And then we're going to look at three significant statements that are made, actually three uh, divine encouragements, commands that are given in three different verses to really boil it down to where we can understand, take it home, and put it into practice in our lives. You'll notice that in the context of this, Paul mentions two very uh, critical times in history. Actually, one is in history, one is 
that future. He's going to take us in our thinking from the appearance of the grace of God, that appearance that has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. He's going to take us from that point of the Word made flesh, as John tells us in his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He moves on, and we come into that tremendous verse of Scripture in the 14th verse of John chapter 1. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a tremendous verse of Scripture. The Word, the eternal Word, that member of the Godhead, very God, God Himself took upon Him human flesh the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, stepped out of the glories of heaven, came to an old world that was cursed with sin, lived a sinless life, voluntarily went to an old rugged cross and gave his life for you and for me. So he introduces this text of Scripture with this wonderful, critical moment in history. When the Word became flesh, it dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, those who observed the Word made flesh, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Some would have said, and I believe it, I think it's appropriate, that in certain contexts of Scripture, the term, the Son of God, and the grace of God are synonymous. Having the same meaning, referring to the same individual. The Son of God and the grace of God. So we find in verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now that's just a categorical statement that Paul makes. That is what the Spirit of God is conveying to this congregation and to other congregations and to any and all who will accept it, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, making salvation available to all who will receive it, all who will trust the Savior. It doesn't leave anybody out. If you're here this morning without Christ as your personal Savior, you're not left out. God has moved heaven and earth so that he could offer to you by his wonderful, matchless grace and his love for you, he can offer to you forgiveness of sin and life everlasting through faith in Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Wonderful event. So the statement is made. But now we find three words that I want to focus our attention on for a few remaining minutes this morning. The first one is teaching. You'll notice in verse number 12, teaching us, I'll come back to that. 
The second word is found in verse 13, looking for. And the third is found in the context of what he is making us. That is, we are to be learning, we are to be looking, and we are to be longing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may have a problem with that. I say you may have a problem with that because it depends on where you are spiritually. I'm sure I'm talking to many in this congregation this morning that can think back to the to what was going on in your heart when you realized you were still lost in sin and needed a Savior. When you heard the gospel, perhaps for the first time, or when the gospel was brought home to you, maybe a parent sat down with a child and shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your need to be saved. Maybe it was in a church service such as this, and the gospel was preached, and you realized you were lost in need of a Savior. I can tell you, if you were of sufficient age, two things were going on. One, there was a convicting work of the Spirit of God that gave you an unrest deep down in the innermost part of your being. And I can tell you also that there was turmoil going on. There was that, that, that conflicting work of the devil himself who would keep that word from lodging in your heart and in your mind that he might keep you from trusting Christ as your personal Savior. And maybe some of you, for days that went on, maybe for weeks, maybe for years, that conflict was going on. There was no rest, no peace in your soul until you came to that time where you turned from your sin, you turned to Christ, you realized he died for you, paid the penalty of your sin, and was offering to you forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. And you were excited about that. The conflict was still there by the devil. Oh, don't believe that. You, you Put that off. You can deal with that later. But as long as you put it off, the turmoil was still there. The conflict was going on. Until one day, you yielded to Christ. You said, not only do I believe it, I accept it. I'm inviting you, Lord Jesus, to come into my life. Cleanse me from my sin. Make me your child and give me heaven as my eternal home and help me to live for you day by day. And the moment you did, the burden was lifted. The joy came to your heart and the blessed assurance of the witness of the Word of God and the Spirit of God began to flood your soul. That's because you had been taught by the grace of God and learning had taken place. I had a professor in college that seemed to me one of his favorite expressions was, uh, there, is no learn there is no teaching unless there is learning taking place. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You can spout a lot of words, but unless learning is taking place, no teaching has really occurred. Teaching and learning have to go hand in hand. So in our text of Scripture, we find out teaching us that denying. Now let me give you a real uh, difficult 
definition of that word denying. I can sum it up in three words. Just stop it. Just stop it. That's what the word means. Stop it. Put a stop to it. Teaching us that denying, putting a stop to ungodliness and worldly lust. Ungodliness can be summarized in a statement that says anything that displeases God is ungodly. Any way of your life that displeases God is ungodly. Any word that you speak that displeases God is ungodly. Any deed that you do that displeases God is ungodly. So what uh, the Spirit of God is saying to us is, stop it. Deny it. Don't let it happen. Don't do it. That's the thrust of this verse. It says, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Worldly lust would be putting the things of this world ahead of the things of God. Giving a priority to the ways of the world than the ways of God. Not pleasing Him. So, the text says, don't do that. And if you're doing it, stop it. Put a stop to it. Deny that from becoming a part of your life. Then notice further, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that's the negative part of it. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, in this present world means now, here and now. This is for action to take place in your life and in mine now. Not putting it off till tomorrow, but now. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and then living soberly. I think these three expressions cover a broad spectrum. I believe this sober living, which... Uh, in certain contexts can have the emphasis of staying away from alcoholic beverages and being sober. And it has a close association with what we find in this particular text of Scripture. And that means to be sober-minded, to be clear in your thinking, to be diligent in your thinking, and living a, 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 a life that is controlled by good thinking. That applies to the person himself. So when we read that part of the text, we say, that, that's me. My responsibility is sober living. I mean, giving thought, giving serious thought about where am I going to spend eternity? How am I pleasing or displeasing God? Sober-minded, serious living, considering our life and our lifestyle. So he says, soberly and righteously. Righteously, I believe in this context, would apply chiefly to our fellow man, our fellow men, our associates, our family, our work relationships, those with others with whom we come in contact, so that I'm going to live a clean life before them. I'm going to have a consistent Christian testimony before them. I'm not going to participate in things they do. I will exclude myself from that. I'm going to walk uprightly before God. I'm going to establish a testimony that will count for Jesus Christ. 
I'm not going to let my deeds speak so loudly that they can't hear my words as I give them a testimony of God's saving grace. So it applies to personally, then it, it branches out to the people, our associates, those with whom we come in contact day by day. But then the third aspect of that, notice in the, in the word, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's Godward living. So I'm going to think soberly, serious-mindedly. I'm going to give thought to what I'm doing, where I'm going, how I'm living, how I'm pleasing or displeasing God. And, and before those with whom I come in contact, I'm going to establish a consistent, godly testimony that will be to the glory of God. And my life is going to have as its aim and its goal to please Almighty God. That's what he's talking about. So he says the, the, the grace of God that has appeared has taught us something. I want to ask you a question. Are you learning? Have you learned what he's taught? Or are you learning what he's teaching? That's certainly a requirement. Look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe in this text of Scripture that Paul is emphasizing the rapture of the church and the second coming of the Lord in power and great glory. He's not making a distinction there. There is a, there is a motive, there is a meaning, there is a reason why I believe the Spirit of God led Paul to use these particular words as he describes that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's just simply when we see Christ. Now for the church, for those of you who are now born again of the Spirit of God and a part of the family of God, you'll see him in the rapture of the church. For those who are not part of the church, when the church is raptured off the seed, uh, but the, the, the tribulation saints and the saints of old uh, that shall be raised and come into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and see him in all of his glory. That comes in the future. He's coming for his own in the rapture of the church. He's coming with his own in his glorious appearing and moving into the millennial reign of Christ. Are you anxious for his coming? Are you looking for his coming? Over and over again, we are challenged with that very thought. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. Looking for him and his appearance. Waking up in the morning and saying, this may be the day that Jesus comes. Let me ask you, when I make a statement like that, how does it affect your heart? Do you say, oh, I don't think I'm ready. I, I don't think I could earnestly say, even so come, Lord Jesus. You're not looking for him. You've got things you want to do, places you want to go. You put them ahead of your looking for the return of Christ. No wonder our lives go off in the ditch. No wonder sin creeps into our lives. We're not keeping our hearts and our minds fixed on Christ. We're not living as this day as if it, the, it could be the last before Jesus comes. We're not ordering our steps in such a way that we won't be ashamed 
when we see him face to face. I ask you, are you learning? I ask you, are you looking? He's coming again. This same Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven shall come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming again. Are you ready for his coming? Will you be caught up together with those who have, in the church age who had passed away already? Their bodies were in the grave. Their spirit is with the Lord. When the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Are you ready? Are you looking? If you're not learning and you're not looking, then I question how dedicated are you to living a holy, a practical, holy life. But there's a third. Longing. I want you to notice verse 14. Speaking of Christ, every time I read this verse, I think to myself, oh, what a price was paid for my salvation. What a price was paid for redemption. Listen to the verse. Speaking of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now that word peculiar doesn't mean strange. It doesn't mean weird. It has a distinct meaning. That peculiar people means a, a people of his own. He owns you. If you're saved, he bought you with a price. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, and you belong to him. Are you longing for him? Are you longing to see the one who loved you so much that he died for you? That he paid the penalty for your sin? That he'll cleanse you from your sin, give you life everlasting, and one day be ushered you'll be ushered into his presence to look into his face. I think it was Fanny Crosby that said, I want to see my Savior first of all. There are a lot of things we want to see and learn about heaven, but do you want to see your Savior first of all? That is the divine initiative that follows that divine instrument that's motivated and given so that we might know that divine imperative as a reality, we have been taught by grace. Are you learning? Are you looking? Are you longing? If not, then I would call into question how seriously you're attempting to live a holy, godly life pleasing unto Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? We're going to have the instruments play a familiar gospel hymn. But I want to, I, I, I want to just review 
in your presence a little bit of the theme and thrust of that song. Let me first give a testimony. It's mine, and if you're saved by the grace of God, it's yours as well. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. But I want to call to your attention that another verse, that last verse of that great hymn. Souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He your savior wants to be. Be saved today. Now you fit somewhere in that first stanza or that third stanza. The challenge has been brought to us because we have been taught by God's grace. We were learning, we are looking, and we are longing. Where do you fit? In that first verse as a testimony of God's saving grace? Or that third verse? Souls in danger are invited to look above. You've got to make that decision. Father in heaven, as we review in our hearts and in our minds that word that we've heard, a divine imperative, a divine instrument, a divine initiative. We marvel at your wonderful grace. That grace that appeared when your son and our Savior was born of a virgin, lived among men, died a voluntary death, substitutionary atonement for our sin, that we might have life everlasting through faith in him. I pray, God, you'll speak to each heart. Those that have not that testimony, but even at this moment are souls in danger. Invite them, dear God, impress upon their hearts to look to you and accept the wonderful gift of your marvelous grace. And we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? Just stand and listen as the instruments play that song. And I'm going to quote those stanzas again. And, and I, want, I want you to know where you fit. What's your place? And if you don't fit in the testimony of that first stanza, why don't you come to Christ today? Why don't you just step out from where you are in that pew? Come down. I'll meet you right down front. We'll pray with you. We'll share the word of God with you. You can trust Christ as your personal Savior. 
Why don't you do it today? As they pray, listen, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Oh, I hope you fit right there. I hope that's your testimony. If not, listen carefully to the third stanza. Souls in danger. Look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows, his will obey. He your savior wants to be. Be saved today. Why don't you settle it now? There's a war. There's a battle being fought in the very depth of your soul. Why don't you receive Christ as your Savior? Why don't you come? Just step out and let someone take the Bible, God's Word, and show you how to be saved. And you can leave this building this morning on your way to heaven. Your soul's in danger. Look to Christ. attention. Thank you, Dr. Hall, as well. We are on a path to be like Jesus Christ, to be holy like he is holy. And if there's anything we can do as a church to aid you in that, please come and talk to us. We'd love to help you. We'd love to open up God's word with you and show you what he has for you today. Like Dr. Hall said, if you don't know if you are his child, if you don't know if you are saved. We'd love to talk to you about that as well to give you hope and encouragement from Scripture. So come see us after the service if there's anything we can do. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray uh, this morning and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you that what you desire from us is to be holy. It's, it's not to be comfortable. It's not to live a life that's for ourselves, but it's to live a life for a higher purpose, to give you the glory you deserve. And so, Father, I pray that we would do that. We would come out of this message this morning, having heard your word, impassioned to be a peculiar people, zealous for good works, because you have been so gracious to us. So, Father, I pray that that would be on our mind. Thank you for this morning, and uh, we pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us.